You're listening to New City's Sermon Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep in God's Word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of His kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're in this two or three week series called Renewed People, New City where we're looking at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, that talks about the heavenly city where um, we are going, if you're a follower of Jesus, ultimately we're going to live with Jesus forever in this new city. And the idea is really that as we look at these pictures of this new heavenly city, that it will help us live out our Christian faith right here and right now in this city. As we look at the new city, it will renew us here. Chad talked a little bit about being faithful witnesses in our city, faithful witnesses of the gospel. And then last week, we started looking at this pictures of the new city, and we're going to continue to do that today. I think it's hard for people to grasp on to the afterlife and let that affect how they operate today. I mean, you get up in the morning, you've got new challenges, you've got new trials, you've got new things you've got to struggle with, and you're like, I need something now. Like, I need something in this moment. The afterlife, whatever God's going to do then, it doesn't really help me right now because I got trials I got to walk through and I got to get on 95 and I got to push my way to work and I got to deal with difficult people. But God wants to help us in the moment now by giving us a clear picture of the hope of the future. See, the, the hope is the help. As you get a picture of heaven and the hope builds inside of you, The hope is the help that helps you persevere day to day. But sometimes that hope of heaven doesn't help us because we don't really understand what's going on. We don't have a clear picture. If heaven is a song, we're singing the wrong lyrics. And so when we sing the wrong lyrics, we don't really understand the meaning and it doesn't help us. When I was a sophomore in high school, Pearl Jam came out with a new album. And I was so excited. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, don't talk about Pearl Jam in the pulpit. But you were listening to Y100 on the way here, weren't you? Come on. Anyways, Pearl Jam is about to come out with this album. And we were so excited about hearing this new album from them. And it came out, and it was experimental, and it was exciting. And there was these awesome guitar riffs. And there was one particular song that me and my friends really liked. It was a song called Corduroy. And it started off with this really, like, aggressive lead-in guitar. And right away, the first lyric was Eddie Vedder going, The waiting drove me mad. You're finally here and I'm a mess. That's why I'm not on the worship team. <laughs> but there's something about that, like, angst. If you were a teenager in the 90s, all the angst that we had, then you're just like, yes, that's it. And so we would walk down the halls and we would sing these songs and I mean, I, 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 my, my memory's a little fuzzy. I kind of picture it like an episode of Glee, but that's not really how it happened. But I remember one particular time we were in the hallways and we were singing together. The waiting drove me mad, except I heard someone in the group singing something different. And we stopped. Wait, wait, who was that? And what did you just say? And one of my friends said, uh, the waiting trophy man. And we all kind of laughed. I was like, well, wait, what, what song are you singing? She said, Corduroy, that's the song I'm singing. And we say, what did you say the lyrics were? And she said, the waiting trophy man. 
And so we went with her on it. We're like, what's the song about? And she had constructed this whole thing that the song was about based on the fact that she thought the first lyric was the waiting trophy man. That was not the first lyric of the song. It was the waiting drove me mad. She had ended up in this whole other place because she had gotten the wrong lyrics to the song. And when you get the wrong lyrics to the song, you don't understand the meaning. Sometimes even when you do get the lyrics to the song right, you still don't understand the meaning. I remember my father told me about one of his favorite songs from the 60s. And I had to tell him, Dad, that song is about smoking doobies. <laughs> and might ruin my dad. He's like, I don't want to listen to this song anymore. We've got to make sure that we get the lyrics right in order to get the right meaning. And as Christians, we sing this song about the afterlife. We sing this song about heaven, but we often don't sing the right lyrics. And therefore, we don't really understand the meaning and we don't have the hope, we don't have the hope that we should about the afterlife. We think that heaven's something about like harps and clouds and our disembodied souls sort of floating around, hugging one another and singing kumbaya and escaping this broken earth. Escaping this broken earth. But see, those are the wrong lyrics. That's the wrong meaning of the song. Well, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor John, don't we go to heaven when we die? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Yes. The Bible teaches that upon death, your soul is separated from your body, your body goes in the ground, and your soul is immediately in the presence of the Lord. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, if I'm away from the body, I'm at home with the Lord. But that trip is just a layover. There's a second leg of the trip where at the final day, your soul and your body are rejoined because your body will be resurrected. And when Jesus comes to judge the earth, you will be publicly acquitted because Jesus died in your place. But then, then you get to experience sin's curse reversed. You get to see death banished, all things made new, Creation is renewed, this broken world healed, and heaven and earth are joined together in a new city. That's what we talked about last week. And today we're going to continue to unpack this picture of a heavenly city coming to earth in order that we might understand the lyrics and get the song right. Because as we do that, the hope will help you live every day. Amen? Let's look at Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and then we're going to look at 21, 22 through 2, 5. Then I saw, that's John, then I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Skip down to verse 22. 
I did not see a temple in it, the city. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temples. Or its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never, never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. The word of God. So as we look at this picture, we're going to see that this song is not about escape from a broken world, but about the total healing of a broken world. And the song that we're going to look at, if we could call it a song, it has four different verses. The four different verses we're going to look at are relationship restored with God, stuff repurposed for God, power submitted to God, humanity flourishing through God. That's what we're going to see the afterlife is like, and I hope that it produces hope in you for today. Let's look at the first one, relationship restored to God. Every one of us has this God longing in our hearts. Every one of us was made to be in relationship with God. Man started out in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, in perfect relationship with God not hiding, not guilty, not in shame, having this meaningful relationship where God was all and and mankind found their significance in relationship to him. But once Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world, separation happened and we were separated from God and a God-shaped hole was left in our hearts. And since then, mankind has been on a search to fill that God-shaped hole in our heart. And that search that we're on is called worship. I'm not talking about worship raising your hand, but this search to find the thing that gives our life significance, to center our life on something that will give us meaning, to something to meet our deepest longings. It reminds me of this children's book called, Are You My Mother? And in this book, this bird is about to be hatched. And his mother decides, I'm going to find food for that bird. And so the mother leaves the nest while the baby is still in the egg. The mother leaves to go find food. And during that time that the mother's gone, the bird hatches and goes, where's my mother? And then the bird begins on this journey where the bird goes up to all these different animals. He goes up to a dog and he goes, are you my mother? And he goes up to a cat, are you my mother? 
He goes up to a bull, are you my mother? And it's quite ridiculous watching this bird trying to meet this deepest longing it has for its mother. There's nothing that fits. But in the same way, you and I run through this life going from thing to thing, going, are you my God? Are you my God? Will you give me significance? Will you fill the God-shaped hole in my heart? We go to wealth and we say, are you my God? We go to status in our society and we go, are you my God? We look to our kids or a relationship or our appearance and we think that if we get that thing, it will fill us. And we look ridiculous running to all these things asking, are you my God? We build our lives around things that were never meant to sustain us or to give us significance and they will never fill the void. We look to power We think, if I just have enough influence, if I have enough power, if I have enough followers online, then I'll feel important. But it it never works. It never feels enough. We think, if I can just get enough comfort or pleasure in my life, then that will make me feel secure. But it never does. And the funny thing is that as we are on this search for something to fill us, we just get angrier and harsher and more desperate and insecure Because nothing can meet our need for God but God. We have that God longing in our hearts. And nothing in this world will fill that longing. But that is one of the hopes of the afterlife. That's one of the hopes of being in relationship with God in the new city. Our relationship with God is completely restored. And we're no longer on a search for something to fill us. Look what it says in 21 verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. And they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In this new city, in the afterlife, God and humanity are restored in perfect relationship where no one is searching for something to fill them because God is all and fills every person there with significance. There's no temple in the city. There's no place to go to worship God because God is everywhere. He's, he's there. You can't, you can't miss him. In fact, it says the temple is the Lord God. And we get this sense that the presence of God permeates the city. You don't have to go looking for him because his glory and light are everywhere. Every action you do, every step you take, every breath you breathe in the new city takes on new delight and deep meaning because you're restored to your relationship with God. In 2123, it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. That's where we get the logo for our church. If you see the light coming over the city, it needs no sun or moon because the glory of God and the light of Jesus illuminates the city. And we get this sense that everywhere in the city, you are bearing the full weight and significance of who God is. There's nowhere you can go 
where you're not in his presence and you're not being touched by his glory. I love how at the end of Revelation, it keeps referring to Jesus as the lamb. Over and over and over, it says the lamb. The lamb illuminates the city. And the irony is that we have put things in the place of God, but we're constantly reminded in the new city that we're in the new city because God put his son on the cross for us. The lamb, the sacrificial lamb, who made a loving sacrifice by dying in our place and taking the full brunt of God's wrath. He was put on the cross, cross punished for our sins, and the full payment, full atonement, full sacrifice was made. And so even as you're in the city restored to God, as you interact with Jesus, the Lamb, you're constantly reminded of God's great love for you, that Jesus died for you. He was your ticket into the city. Can you imagine living the rest of the eternity of eternity in God's glory, feeling fully loved, seeing the Lamb of God there who has died for you? You know, we live in such a cynical age, but in the afterlife, in the new city, we will live in constant growing awe and astonishment of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Verse 3 and 4 and 22 says this, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The search for a God substitute is over. There's no more worship confusion. The city will be full of God's presence. And like the sun hitting you, God's glory and love will hit you in a way that you won't have to try to worship. You just will. As you see the weight of who God is and the love of Christ for you. I look forward to eternity growing in my sense of awe and dumbfoundedness that Christ has died for me. And I look forward to sharing that with you as well. And the hope we have is that the part of the total healing is that relationship restored to God. And as you look day to day, I hope you long for that day. I know that you want God to help you now, and he will, but part of the help is the hope of seeing him face to face. Relationship restored with God, but also in the heavenly city, we see that stuff is repurposed for God. Stuff is repurposed for God. In verses 24 and 26, it says this, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What does that glory and honor mean? Here's what I think it means, and I'll, I'll show you some scripture in just a minute, but I think that it's actually the kings of the earth bringing culture, commerce, Arts, achievements, customs, and things cultivated, they're bringing stuff. They're bringing stuff into the heavenly city. If we go to Isaiah 60, which is an Old Testament uh, picture of what we're looking in in Revelation, 
It says this, then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. I know you're lost, but I'm going to unpack it for you. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you, and the rams of Nebioth will serve you and go up on my altar as an acceptable sacrifice. I will glorify my beautiful house. Yes, the coasts and islands will wait for me with the ships of Tarshish in the lead to bring your children from far away and their gold, their silver and gold with them for the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, who has glorified you. All that camels and flocks and ships, and if we expand the passage, we'll see cedars, and it's all stuff. It's stuff. It's cultural stuff. It's military stuff. It's stuff of commerce. But we see this picture of it getting brought from the nations into the city for God to use. See, we have this view that, like, stuff is sinful. Like, God didn't create the world physical. No, God created the world physical. He told people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to make culture and go out and make stuff out of worship for God and service to others. Stuff is not sinful. The problem comes when we do culture and commerce and customs and arts and achievement not out of worship. Like when we do all that stuff out of our own human pride, rather than as worship to God. It becomes self-glorifying. It becomes like little Tower of Babels. You remember the Tower of Babel? That was built just to prove they did not need God. We make stuff and we do stuff, and stuff's not bad, but when we do it to honor ourselves... It's not down on a worship. The irony is we use God's stuff creatively, but not to honor him. It reminds me of this time when I was like in elementary school and I got really mad at my parents. I thought I was being raised unfairly. I was convinced that they were unjust. And I had $80 in my pocket, which in my mind, I was going to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. So I told them, I have $80. I'm out of here. I don't need you. I'm going to go live in a hotel. I'm going to live large, and I'll be back in a couple months. Not realizing that $80 would not even get me a night in the hotel. And the irony of that whole situation was I had the $80 because I had used their stuff to make the $80. It wasn't even mine. And yet in my arrogance, I thought, I don't need you. I've got my stuff. In a similar way, we as human beings have said, God, we don't need you. We've got stuff, and we're going to just do this the way we want to. My $80 was not a sign of my independence, but my dependence. And the culture and all the stuff that we make is all God's. It all comes from his ability, or from the abilities that he's given us, or the stuff that he's put in this world. And the fact that we can make culture and make stuff isn't a sign of our independence, but rather our dependence. But anything not done in worship is lacking. Stuff isn't 
bad. It just should be done in worship. And what we see from this weird passage in Isaiah is it looks like the stuff that's made, not out of worship to God, still gets repurposed in the new city for God. All these people are bringing stuff. They're bringing stuff like the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish were these monster vessels that could sail across the sea for a long period of time. And while that was amazing, the fact that these people from Tarshish had these ships, the ships became a source of human pride. We don't need God, we got ships. But the irony is that God seems to be saying, okay, I'll take your ships back and I'll use them for my worship in the new city. See, there's going to be stuff in the new city. We're not going to be sitting on clouds playing harps. If you read theologians, they'll talk about stuff like commerce happening and art and, and all this stuff happening without the presence of sin, but it being done for the glory of God. And that makes us rethink about how we think about stuff and culture. Because stuff and culture is not bad, but we also have to ask the question, is it about us and human pride, or is it about the worship of God? A theologian named Richard Mao has written a lot about this, and I want to read this quote to you. It's a little long, but I think it will help you um, be challenged. The Lord of hosts has a day against all of these things, against nations who brag about being number one, against racist pride, against the idealizing of human potential, against our self-actualization, against our self-actualizing manifestos, against our reliance on missiles and bombs, against art and technology, against philosophy textbooks and country music records, against Russian vodka and South African diamonds, against trade centers and computer banks, throne rooms and presidential memorabilia. In short, God will stand in judgment of all idolatrous and prideful attachments. That means stuff without God to military, technological, commercial, and cultural might. All of those rebellious projects that glorify oppression, exploitation, and the accumulation of possessions, it is in such projects that we can discern today our own ships of Tarshish and cedars of Lebanon. But the stuff of human cultural rebellion will nonetheless be gathered into the new city. God still owns the filling, The earth, including the American military and French art and Chinese medicine and Nigerian agriculture, belongs to the Lord. And he will reclaim all of these things, harnessing them for service in the city. Swords will become plowshares. Spears will be changed into pruning hooks. Racist posters will become aesthetic objects that will enhance the beauty of the city. Perhaps missiles will become play areas for children. Stuff gets repurposed in the holy city in order to create this culture that worships God. And as we think about there, it should help us here. It should inspire us because what we do here, it matters. Everything that you do and make in the culture that you're creating, you can do it for the glory of God. It doesn't have to be about you. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
And the stuff that you do in this world isn't insignificant. It matters in a way that seems to somehow mysteriously carry over into the life to come. But it also should challenge us to think about all the things in this world that are not done out of worship of God. If they're not done out of worship for God, they're still good in a sense, but they're lacking. Everything will be repurposed for his use. And it makes us wrestle with things like cultural icons, like what celebrity do you follow? Uh, We can celebrate the gifts that God gave them at the same time realize that that person may not be doing that thing that they're doing for the worship of God. And therefore, it's lacking. But heaven is a place where there will be stuff. And we can celebrate that. Stuff gets repurposed for God. But also power is submitted to God. Who are the people bringing all this glory and honor? What's the kings of the earth? The kings of the earth. Kings of the earth were not merely politicians. They were more like dictators, military leaders, and cultural authorities combined. And the amazing thing, in the new city, they're somehow drawn to the city, like like a magnet by the glory of Jesus Christ. But their procession towards the city means a submission to the one in the city. In other words, they're coming to submit to the ultimate power. I don't necessarily think that these kings are Christian kings coming to worship Jesus. Because all throughout the book of Revelation, the kings have been hostile towards God and his people. I think that this is some sort of political reckoning that's happening. I think these kings are coming in defeat to admit their defeat to King Jesus. They're coming not just with their stuff to hand it over, but to submit and say, the authority that we had while we were on earth, it was never ours and it was always yours. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow before Christ and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And I think that that is what's happening here. Now, what does that have to do with anything that we deal with on a daily basis? Well, if the kings of the earth and all the rulers of the world are going to one day submit to King Jesus, it means a couple things. One thing is, as you walk through this life, you're not going to quite fit. In 2016, some people's deepest hope was in make America great again. And other people's hope is with I'm with her. But your deepest hope cannot be in either of those things. Because all the leaders of the world will one day bow before the ultimate king. He is the great one. He is the one that you want to say, I'm with him. And your deepest hope is that Jesus Christ is king and Lord. I know that as you wrestle with politics on this earth, you, you, you want to vote for policies that are just and fair and equitable. But you must also realize that many policies that are put into practice are simply pragmatism. What works? It's not done out of worship towards God. And the irony is, those who have power and wealth in this life but do not have Jesus, 
are not half as wealthy as you will be in the life to come. Spurgeon said, an emperor that does not have Christ is not even half as rich as a beggar that does have Christ. And the irony is that these kings are coming to deposit their stuff in the city, and then you get to use it with Jesus. So vote, advocate, push, pray for our leaders, but realize every leader has fallen short of the glory of God. And none of them are as glorious or as powerful as King Jesus. And one day they will have to submit their power to him in a place where his reign is visible. And because he is in charge, every human being flourishes to their full potential. That's the last stanza of this song. Humanity flourishing through God for eternity. Verse 1 in, in chapter 22 says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main streets. There's all sort of Old Testament imagery that's, that's coming together, but what we see in this is this river coming out of the throne room of God, and, and we, we get the sense that as this river flows out, the life of God, and the love of God flow out and cause human flourishing as it moves out. But it's not just that there's this river. It says the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We get the sense that our destiny is flourishing with God in a restored Eden. The river and the tree of life are there. In, in Eden, humanity had been banned access to the tree of life when we fell so that we would not eat the tree of life and live eternally with God or apart from God. But now... We are given access to the tree of life. We don't know quite how it works, but we know what it does. It heals the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of all the nations. And that means that wars, oppression, tribalism, slavery, political battles, economic instability, group against group, whatever it is that's breaking the nation, that's harming the nations, is ultimately healed. The song we sing about the afterlife is not harps and clouds, but the total healing of everything. Sin's curse is reversed, death is banished, all things are made new, creation is restored. As Sam says in uh, The Lord of the Rings, everything sad comes untrue. Everything sad comes untrue. And as you hold on to that today, it should produce some sort of hope in you. And the hope is the help as you walk day to day through this broken world. 
See, sin and death and all the things related to sin and death are simply one-hit wonders that will fade out of your memory in the new city. This broken world will be completely healed when heaven and earth are rejoined. And the only song that you will hear is the eternal worship of Jesus. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people will no longer be divided, but united together, singing praises to the Lamb who laid down his life on their behalf. And you will reign with him forever. Isn't that amazing? You will be part of what he's doing and, and creating culture and, and, and continuing the purposes of God. And that is your destiny. That is a big picture, but it's a beautiful song to sing. And I pray that as you let that soak in, it builds hope. And the hope is what helps you today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for you to return. We ask that you would come quickly. We long for you to restore all things. And we ask that you would give us hope as we walk today. Lord, there are many people here with challenges and, and difficulties and things that make them want to give up and wonder if you love them. But I pray that you would remind them that no matter what's happening now, they have a destiny with you. Lord, we thank you for this picture of the new city. Renew us with hope. And all God's people said, amen.